Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of the amazing gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for your incredible love towards us. And Lord, we pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would meet with us, Lord, that you would speak to us by the power of your word. And God, we ask uh, that you would be present, Lord, and that as your word is open, God, that our hearts would be opened as well, Lord. So God, we pray that what is about to happen would not merely be an intellectual exercise, that it would not merely be uh, uh, something that merely enters into our minds, Lord, but that would touch us at our very souls, Lord, would transform our very hearts for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Open up your Bibles to John uh, chapter 7. John uh, chapter 7. Just a quick uh, public service announcement before we get going about our cafe. So we, uh, we were having this spring sale at our cafe, and our cafe was lit last week, okay? It was bumping, okay? So you all like cheap coffee and hot chocolate. We understand that. But um, just a couple of things about, about our desire for the cafe after the service and our intention for the cafe, you know, during the service as well. So during the service, there's a couple of families in our church, a number of families that have little infants and they're kind of making their way back and forth to the nursery and they want to try to catch the sermon and, and the sermon video is not coming through our TVs yet, but the sermon audio is. And so during the services, we really want that cafe to be a a quiet place so that people who are cuddling uh, babies are, are able, to, uh, able to listen to the sermon. Everyone clear on that? Okay. Also, the cafe is a place where you are welcome to bring your children, but please supervise your children. In fact, can we just say that about the whole church? We find kids in the gym, kids in the elevator, kids on the stairwells. If we could just be more intentional and proactive, especially with all the people that are going to be coming this Easter and moving forward, if we could be a little bit more proactive in our parenting, uh, I think that would be uh, uh, beneficial to our, our broader uh, church uh, family. So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 7 or us just are coming up and down the aisle uh, right now as we get ready for Easter weekend and particularly get ready for our Good Friday service uh, coming up in just a few days I think John 7 is really a wonderful a passage for us to be uh, looking at and studying uh, together. The, the attempt or the desire on behalf of the Jewish leaders to try to kill Jesus comes up several times in John uh, chapter 7. We are first introduced to the idea in John chapter, John chapter 5 when Jesus healed the man who had been lame for 38 years and then called himself equal with the Father and then it said that the Jews were, were trying to kill him from that point on. And in John chapter 7, the, this idea of wanting to kill Jesus is sort of at the, uh, at the forefront of this passage where we're going to study. So let's read it together. I'm in John uh, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read through to verse 36. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, and your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his will, but sorry, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered, do you have a demon? Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at you. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made this man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaims as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we may not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will, and, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jewish leaders at this point are overtly talking about killing a Jesus. And Jesus is calling them out on it. And there's three reasons that Jesus describes here why they want to kill him. The first one is this, his popularity. His popularity. And, and the popularity of Jesus comes up in his conversation with his brothers. It says in verse 1, after this, Jesus went about 
in Galilee. That's Jesus' kind of hometown where he grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in the, in the, the region of Galilee. It says that he would not go about in Judea. That's the, that's the province or the area where Jerusalem was found. And he says that he wouldn't do that because the Jews were seeking uh, to kill him. Now, Jesus came on a mission. He knew, that, he knew that the Jewish leaders were eventually going to collaborate with the Romans and have him crucified. That was the whole reason why he came. But Jesus was working on a very specific timeline. So he was avoiding this region because he didn't want the timeline to move forward. Now, his brothers, on the other hand, were more impatient. It says in verse 2, now the feast of booths was at hand and his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. His brothers are concerned about his popularity. Remember John chapter 6, Jesus started talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. And in, in John chapter 6 verse 66 it says that a bunch of his disciples stopped following him from that point. And so Jesus' brothers were saying, listen, you got to get back to where the people are. You're not going to recruit any more followers up here in the sticks in Galilee. Get down to Jerusalem. The Feast of Booths is happening. And, and use that as an opportunity. Perform a miracle and, and get more followers. Become greater in your influence. So verse 2 says that it was the Feast of uh, Booths. Or the feast of a Sukkot in uh, in Hebrew. This is what a what a a, a simple booth would uh, would look like uh, in uh, mid September, mid October. You would you still see this today during during the feast of Sukkot. You have all people building these. It's like a little tent, and in sort of a a a, a breezy uh, walls around it and a thatched uh, roof. And this was a way for the people to remember how they lived before they entered into the promised land. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which another translation would be the Feast of Tents, it was like a week-long camping holiday for, uh, for the people of God. Now, for some of you, you think week-long camping holiday, you're like, yes. Others of you are like, what a nightmare. But this was an opportunity for the people to remind themselves where they came from. And God gave the command for the Feast of Booths in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 34. God said, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So everyone came, they brought their tents, they in and around Jerusalem, on the roofs of buildings, you see all of these booths that are being set up. This was one of those festivals where everyone came to Jerusalem. That's why Jesus' brother's like, what are you doing up here? There's hardly anyone living up here in the first place. Plus, it's the Feast of Booths. Go to where the people are. They were concerned about his popularity. But notice what it says about his brothers in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now obviously they believed that he could perform miracles. Obviously they believed that there was something about Jesus. But they didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. 
They didn't believe that Jesus was all of the things that he said he was. Now, Jesus' brothers here in John chapter 7, this can serve as a warning for some of us and also an encouragement for some of us as well. First of all, a warning. A warning to those of us who think that we are Christian by association. Your, your girlfriend's a Christian. Your, your, your parents are a Christian. Your, your, your grandparents uh, went to church. You, you have a son or a daughter who's a missionary. And so obviously, because of, because of my family connections, I'm, I'm in as well. Obviously, just by association, I'm, I'm an accessory to Christianity, so I should be lumped in. This should be a stern warning. These guys grew up with Jesus. I heard one, one preacher say, they shared a bunk bed with Jesus. They knew all about him. And maybe you're here today, maybe you've grown up with Jesus and your parents believe in Jesus and you've grown up going to Harvest Kids and then to Awana and then youth and maybe you're a young adult now. And, and you've, listen, that doesn't mean that you believe in him. We're not Christians by association. You have to personally make a decision. There is an inside and an outside. And his brothers, even though they were so close to Jesus, were on the outside. And so this is a, a clear warning to us who are just sitting comfortably and cozy in church today and thinking, oh, of course I'm a Christian. Everyone around me is. I was brought up on this. Have you personally made a decision? So it's a warning it's also, though, an encouragement for us. It's an encouragement for those of us who are believers, but experience regular opposition from family members to your faith. Because Jesus, who was tempted in every way and yet without sin, knows what it is to be rejected by his own family, knows what it is to feel that opposition from his own brothers. And so when we pray to Jesus about our unsaved spouse or our unbelieving children or, or our, our friends who are close to us but are far from Jesus, Jesus isn't up there being like, Psh, I don't know what you're talking about. He, he lived it. Well, here's the really encouraging thing, though, is two of his brothers, we, we know their names. One was named Jude. Uh, he wrote the book of Jude. He eventually became a follower of Jesus, even though he didn't believe here. And then James, in the book of Acts, is a major leader in the, in the church at Jerusalem and also wrote the book of James. And so it's a warning, but it's also an encouragement to keep praying, to keep witnessing, to keep loving, to keep being faithful. Because at least two of his brothers, even though they're described as not believing here, eventually did come to believe in him. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, my time's not yet come, but your time is always here. Again, Jesus, the, the, the plan with his father is to, Jesus was, was to be the sacrificial lamb, to be crucified on the Passover. His brothers want him to go to Jerusalem and, be, and, and make a public appearance at the Feast of Booth. That's, way ahead, that's six months ahead of schedule. And yeah, at the Feast of Passover, Jesus will, he will make a public appearance He'll come riding in on the colt, and people will be waving palm branches. That's what we celebrate today. Today is Palm Sunday. 
And they'll say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His brothers wanted him to be doing that right now. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. The same thing he said to his mother in John 2. He says to his brothers here in John 7. My hour hasn't come. He says, your hour, you can do whatever you want. But I'm living on a, on a strict timeline here. I've only got 33 years here on earth. And I've got to get this right. Then in verse 7, he says, the world cannot hate you, speaking to his brothers, because they're of the world. He says, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The world hates me, Jesus says. And it hates him because he testifies that his works are evil. You see, when, you, when we truly understand what Jesus is saying here, and then we filter our understanding of John chapter 7 back into the most famous verse in the Gospel of John in the whole Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. What kind of world did God so love? He loved the world so much, the, the very world that hated his son. Dick Lucas uh, described it in this way, the world God loves is a world that hates God. This is the kind of God that we Serve. Dick Lucas goes on to describe that the cross tells all of us, Good Friday tells all of us that if given the chance, we would all kill God. That's essentially what, what sin is. It, is, it is. it is wanting our own autonomy, wanting ourselves to be God, to, to, to take God off of his throne. The world that God loves is the world that hates God. God. And the reason why they hated Jesus was that he testified that their works are evil. He testifies that our works are evil. So we can say, for God so loved the world, but we need to understand what, what kind of a world does he love? When we say to someone, God loves you, first of all, we need to understand, well, who is the God that we're talking about? And who are you when we say God loves you? You see, we, we are talking about a God who loves us in the midst of our rebellion towards him. We'll never truly understand Jesus as a savior until we understand our desperate need as a savior. And that's what Jesus was continually doing, testifying that our works are evil. And that's why the world hates Jesus. That's why in our world, in our society, Christianity, the message of the cross is continually being pushed aside and continually being ridiculed, continually being labeled as bullying because we, because we live in a world where people do not want to have their evil works exposed. And so the Christian faith is pushed off to the a periphery. And Jesus says, listen, the world hates me because I testify that its works are evil. And so we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus is going to say later in John 15 that the world hates him and therefore they're going to hate us as a result. And then he's, he, it says that he remained in Galilee, verse 8. He says, I'm, I'm not going to the feast. And verse 10 is a little bit confusing because it says after his brothers had gone up to the feast... Then he also went up. So was Jesus lying to them when he said, uh, you know, I, I'm not going up? Well, if you, if you check the footnotes in your Bible, when it says in verse 8 that Jesus is not going up, a lot of translations or a lot of uh, manuscripts say, I'm not going up yet. 
And so Jesus wasn't going according to his brother's timeline, and he wasn't going their way. Look what it says in verse 10. He went out not publicly, but in private. So Jesus was, was telling his brothers, I'm not going up according to your time. I'm not going your way. And so he went on his own terms. Then in verse 11, more evidence of the popularity of Jesus. In verse 11 it says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Now, both of these groups are wrong. The, the, the ones that are saying that he's a good man, they're wrong. I mean, surely he was good, but, if, but he couldn't merely be a man. If he was a mere man and was saying the kinds of things that he was saying, if he was a mere man and saying, I'm true food, I'm true water, I can give you true life if you are born again. Listen, if he was just a man, he couldn't cash the checks that he's writing. He's, he's making promises that he can't fulfill. And so if he was just a man and was saying all of these things, he couldn't be good. He must be leading people astray. And so both of the, even the people who seem to be pro-Jesus, calling him a good man, didn't fully understand who Jesus was. And so there was this debate about who Jesus is, as there is today. And then in verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Jesus was the elephant in every room. Oh, he was the elephant in every booth, I guess. As they're, you know, booth to booth and they're camping and they're around the campfire and they're talking. Everyone, Jesus was on the tip of their tongue, but no one wanted to bring it up because of fear of what other people might say. Does that sound familiar? Wanting to talk about Jesus, wanting to, to have a religious conversation, but it's just so taboo in our world today. Then in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And they marveled, how is it that this man has learning, yet he's never studied? He didn't go to university. He's got, no, he's got no diplomas, no credentials, no qualifications. Jesus said, my teaching's not mine, but it's him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether his teaching is from God or whether I am speaking my, on my own authority. That's the second reason they wanted to kill Jesus, not just because of his popularity, but also because of his authority, the authority with which he spoke. Verse 17 is really interesting. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from God. The way to truly understand scripture, the way to truly understand Jesus' teaching is to is to be prepared to obey it, to be ready to do the will of God. Word. The answer is not Bible college. The answer is not a course. The answer is not taking a class or a seminar or YouTube or whatever it may be. All of those things are helpful. I'm not against any of those things. But if you want to truly understand in your, in your ability to know the word of God, you must be willing to follow the word of God. Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. To truly know what God's word is said, saying depends on our willingness to obey it. And Jesus calls them out on it, saying, listen, I'm telling you the truth, but you don't want to obey. You don't want to believe, even though I keep telling you that you must. 
verse 18, still talking about authority, he says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Jesus gives us a, a clear rubric or a clear means of evaluating whether or not you're listening to a false teacher or not. Jesus says, if you want to know if you're listening to a true teacher of God's word or if you're listening to a false teacher of God's word, just pay attention to where the glory goes. There may be a lot of giftedness. There may even be a lot of fruit. There might be a lot of charisma. There might be a lot of influence. There might be a lot of popularity. But Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Pay attention to where the glory goes. Are they stopping the glory at, at the messenger? Or are, they, are, or are they stepping aside and allowing the glory to go where it ought to go? Jesus came as the ultimate example of seeking the glory of his Father. He says at the end of verse 18, In him, talking about himself, there is no falsehood. Again, if he were just a man... He's claiming that he's never lied. There's no falsehood. I mean, what, what person could, could make that kind of a claim? He's not just a good man. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Again, he's talking to these people who are so devoted religiously. You know, they've got their booth all set up. They're following God's command. They've got the book of Leviticus opened up, making sure that they follow every single part of the law. And then Jesus says, you know what? None of you keep the law. And he says, you're, you're trying to kill me. Now, obviously, no one at the time wants to make it public that they're trying to kill Jesus. Because, like, as speaking of the law, there's that whole you shall not murder thing. And so they're, they're trying to come up with a way to murder Jesus without anyone knowing that it was actually murder. So Jesus calls them out and he says, none of you keep the law. Why do you see that? And this is their cover-up, verse 20. The crowd, you have a demon. Well, that escalated quickly. And, and the... the they, they accuse him of, of, of having a demon. And then they said, who is seeking to kill you? They're the ones that are seeking to kill him. He's just calling them on it. And then referring back to what he did in John 5, Jesus says, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Remember, John chapter 5, that was when he healed the man who had been sick for 38 years at the pool. And then in John 5, 18, it says, from then on, they were seeking to kill him. And then he uses this this illustration, he says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, because it started with Abraham. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made this man's whole body well? Let, let me show you what Jesus is. He's, he's talking about these two commands. So in Exodus 20, we have the command about the Sabbath. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. That's one of God's rules. That's his 
law, but also there's another law, Leviticus chapter 12. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. If a little baby boy is born eight days later, exactly, you know, one, uh, one week on, on, the, on his one-week birthday, he's supposed to be circumcised. Now, circumcision is a work. So let me show you how, how these two commands relate. Let's, let's bring the, the calendar up on the, the screen here. So here is just any, any month in the Jewish calendar. Saturday is the Sabbath. And so the command says, you know, don't do any work on Saturday. So if a baby's born on Tuesday, you know, no problem. It's a boy. That's great. And eight days later on day eight on his one-week birthday... You go ahead and you circumcise them on the eighth day. But here's the thing. What if the baby's born on a Sabbath? It's a boy on a Saturday, eight days later. See, the, then, there is this, then there's this moral ethical conundrum. Do you break the command about circumcision and not circumcise them on day eight, maybe do day seven or day nine? Or do you break the command about the Sabbath and, and, and circumcise and circumcise the little guy even though you're not supposed to do any work. And Jesus says, listen, you're all Sabbath breakers. Because babies born on the Sabbath always get circumcised on the next Sabbath. You all break the law. And he says, if you break the Sabbath over a tiny little piece of an infant's foreskin, why are you making such a big deal of this man who had been lame for 38 years? And I told him to take up his bed and walk. So then Jesus gives them this statement in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge. The Pharisees saw that man walking with his, with his mat had no idea the context, had no idea what he had been through through the last 38 years, had no idea about the miracle that had been performed in his life, and they immediately judged him on this minor little detail of the law. And we need to be so careful as Christians not to judge by appearances, not to look at the way a certain person may be dressed or the way that they uh, might talk or be a little bit different from us. Don't judge by appearances. Don't walk around and think, well, your booth is bigger than, than this person's booth or, or your, your, your phylactery is bigger than, uh, than mine. Don't judge by appearances. There's always more uh, to the story. So they wanted to kill Jesus because of his authority. And then lastly, they wanted to kill Jesus because of his identity. His identity. Verse 25 some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, it's not this the man whom they seek to kill? See, it's the rumors were spreading that the plan was to have Jesus crucified. And he says, and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Then in verse 27 it says, but we know where this man comes from. And when, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they were saying, well, we know his hometown. We know where he grew up. We know where he came from. And then they say, but when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. Does anyone know the Old Testament prophecy about 
when the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from? And, and any, any guesses? Isaiah or Jeremiah? You can guess all you want. There is no Old Testament prophecy that no one will know where the Christ has come from. And this was something that was added to the Bible afterwards. And, and, and so the people were, believed, were, were, were evaluating who the Christ was based on something that wasn't even in the Bible. Which is so often something that we can do as well, can't we? We can insert things into the Bible that actually aren't there. But they say, we know where he has come from. Jesus proclaimed, verse 28, when he taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I mean, that would have been a dagger in the heart of all of those Pharisees and those religious people. They, he told them that they didn't know God. They didn't have a relationship with him. All of the religion and the rituals and the rules had completely reversed their relationship with God. They didn't even know him. They were judging by outward appearances what God cares about the heart. And Jesus stating his identity in verse 29, I know him, I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now I'm not sure what this looked like, but they, they, they tried to arrest him. But again, it was six months ahead of schedule. It wasn't the Passover yet, so his hour hadn't come, so no one could lay their hand on him. In verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, he will, do, will he do more signs than this man has done? So many people are believing in him as a result. They were believing that he was the Son of God who came from the Father. Then in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer about six months, because the Passover is coming up, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The dispersion was just the word to describe all of the Jewish people who were living in other places around the world. Asia Minor, present day, Turkey, Greece, Macedonia, all of those kinds of places. Now this is a classic example of Jesus saying one thing, a heavenly thing. And people interpreting it in a worldly way. Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they're thinking, well, where is he going? They're thinking in terms of geography or topography or transportation. But Jesus was talking about going back to his father whom he had sent. It's the same way what, you know, the woman at the well, Jesus says, I'll give you water. She's like, where's your bucket? He, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking about going back in his mother's womb. Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come. And they're immediately thinking of the physical. They're immediately thinking in terms of geography. And so they're asking themselves in verse 36, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Jesus was going to his father and he's telling these religious leaders that they can't come. Why can't they come? 
They couldn't come because they didn't believe. They, they weren't allowed to come to where Jesus was going because they refused to come to Jesus. Jesus says, you can't come with me because you won't come to me. Bit of a spoiler alert for next week's uh, Easter message, but look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, where I am going, you cannot come. And the reason why they cannot come where he is going is because they refuse to come to him in terms of faith. Remember a, a number of years ago um, when the Raptors were in the playoffs for one of the very first times, uh, a, a friend of mine got two tickets. I think this might have been like the first or second time the Raptors were ever in uh, the playoffs. And, and so I remember we, we were both at the ACC and going into the, uh, into the concourse to, to go and see this, this basketball game. And the place was electric. There was so much excitement and enthusiasm. And my friend went first and they scanned his ticket. And he went through. And then along came my ticket. And they tried again. And we still don't know what went wrong, but I didn't get in. I couldn't, I didn't have the right ticket. I, my friend was going, and he was a good friend. He actually came out. Unbelievable. He didn't go to the game. We went to Boston Pizza or something like that and watched it together. I don't know if I would have done it if it was backwards, but anyway. <laughs> We, listen, I didn't have the right ticket. I was not allowed to go in. I was right at the edge. And listen, loved ones, how do we get? It's by believing. Jesus says, you cannot come where I'm going unless you come to me. And you come to me through faith. Don't be like Jesus' brothers and, and think that just because you're close by, that you are somehow in. Make sure that you have the right ticket and, and place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ that you would be with us. Lord, I pray that there would not be a single person in this room who does not leave this place without a saving knowledge of who Jesus is and why he came. God, I pray that you would work and move in our midst by the power of your Holy Spirit, God. As we get ready to stand and sing, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son, Lord. I, I pray that you would fill this place with a, with a roar of faith, with a declaration of belief in 
you, Lord. We want to go where you are going. And later on, you're going to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you, to prepare a place for those who have faith. And so, God, help us to walk by faith and to live by faith and to sing by faith right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.